everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. If we were to just stop and actually learn about our neighbors, learn about their culture, learn about the wonderful things that make them different and appreciate those differences and celebrate those differences and celebrate it in a way where it's part of our collective narrative, I think we would be a much better global society to live in than what we are today. That was archaeologist Alexandra Jones telling why her discipline, which looks back in time, is so important today. I'm Elaine Verveer and this is Seneca's 100 Women to Hear. We are bringing you 100 of the world's most inspiring and history-making women you need to hear. Alexandra Jones is an historical archaeologist and educator who teaches at Goucher College in Maryland. In her academic work, Dr. Jones focuses on the African diaspora and how Black communities have been affected by development or loss to history. She is also founder of the nonprofit Archaeology in the Community. Listen and learn why Alexandra Jones is one of Seneca's 100 Women to Hear. I'm speaking today to Dr. Alexandra Jones, an historical archaeologist and educator and the founder of Archaeology in the Community. Dr. Jones, welcome. We're so delighted to have you with us. Thank you very much for having me. Now, you're an archaeologist who teaches at Goucher College in Maryland. And one of your interests is uncovering the history of African-Americans and enslaved people in this country. How does archaeology help us understand the past as well, I might add, the present? So archaeology is a tool that um, can be utilized to basically plug the holes where history has left people out. Um, Oftentimes, history is the recording of those in power, um, uh, men. Uh, people who are uh, very wealthy. And what you don't see um, oftentimes in these documents when you go to libraries, archives, are the stories of the everyday person, of the person who is doing the mundane, of children, of minority groups. And so what makes archaeology so amazing is that it actually uh, makes history polyvocal. And it gives voice to people who otherwise have been silenced, but you're able to find them through the dirt and through the artifacts and the objects that they left behind. I imagine this is not such an easy undertaking. Are there challenges involved? There's a lot of challenges. Um, When we think about archaeology, oftentimes people think of uh, just professors going out, excavating and kind of doing, um, you know, great adventurous sort of things. In actuality, it's a a very expensive undertaking that's very time-consuming. And oftentimes, the 
general public doesn't know what exactly archaeology is and how exactly we can help them in their current lives and sometimes in their actual current struggles. And so we are often faced with that challenge of explaining what we do, explaining how we can be utilized and explaining the power of our actual field. Well, I know you've also written about how historic African-American communities are endangered by urban development and road building. And we often read stories about the controversies that are created by these undertakings. I know you've got a particular interest for cemeteries. Why is it so important to preserve these cemeteries? Well, I think when we think about communities and we think about ourselves and you know how we got here, what we're doing, um, part of that, or an extension of our community, rather, is our cemeteries. Um, this is the legacy of the people who've come before us. This is the place where they rest. Oftentimes, how they've been created and who created these sacred spaces often have their own backstories. And so in preserving uh, cemeteries, what we're actually doing is preserving the foundations of a lot of communities. We're preserving um, memory. And we're doing that through a landscape sort of form where you can go to this place and, and remember and reminisce on um, the phenomenal acts that everyday people did in order to get us where we're at today. So how does uh, Gibson Grove figure into this? What's happening there and what is uh, your role in that? So Gibson Grove is a um, African-American community that was established in the late 1800s. Um, and it was um, founded and started by Sarah and Robert Gibson. And what came about in this community is um, a number of other African-Americans purchased property um, from a gentleman, and they purchased it along Sunnelox Road in Montgomery County, Maryland. And in establishing this community, um, what they also did was they established everything that they would need to survive and thrive. Because everywhere else around them, very much it was segregated. Um, it wasn't open or welcoming to them. So they created their own church. They created their own school that was uh, named Number 10. And one of the things about this is uh, Gibson Grove is lo located on Lock 10 of the CNO Canal, but it was also 10 African-American families who originally purchased property along here. So they started that and then they started a fraternal order. And this was Morningstar Tabernacle Number 88. And this was a chapter of a larger fraternal organization that existed on the East Coast. And the reason why this was so important was this fraternal society was also a benevolent society. And benevolent societies for African-Americans during this time operated much in the way that insurance companies operate for us, where if anybody in the community became sick, they would pay for doctor's visits. They would pay for the burials of people. They would pay money out to the families um, or the orphan children to take care of them um, after the death. So it's all of these um, sort of things similar to what we think of when we think of life insurance that wasn't open or available to African-Americans. So they started their own um, organization that served that purpose. And in doing that, the order established a cemetery. And they had a meeting lodge where they would meet, they would have political meetings, they would sometimes have other religious um, leaders come and visit and talk with them. They had social gatherings. But all around the back portion of the hall um, was a cemetery where they buried everyone in the community. And 
what we're now saying and what's coming up now is that in the 60s, um, if, if you ever refer, there is a book called The Color of Law, and it talks about uh, the federal government and how the federal government sought to expand um, our infrastructure and uh, strengthen our infrastructure. But they did it by creating uh, roads through colored and African-American communities. So they were intentional about this. So one of the things people don't think about is when you move a community, when you come in and do eminent domain and you pay them, you know, minimal amounts for their land and move them away, oftentimes what you aren't doing is moving the cemeteries. And Gibson Grove is very much a uh, situation where you see that happen, where the highway split the community and the church is actually on one side and then the hall and the cemetery is on the other. As time continued, by destroying a community in this way and paying people because there were property owners in between that, by paying community members to leave, what you end up happening is destroying a community. And so what we've now seen is that everybody is quite excited about the infrastructure bill and the fact that we're going to fix up our roads and our highways. But what we don't, and uh, kind of the, the backside of this is these same roads that initially in the 60s cut through communities are actually going to cause further damage. So for this particular community, um, Morning Star Tabernacle number 88 is actually advocating for the highway not to be expanded any further because it directly runs into the actual cemetery, which means that this place, that this resilient community of people who had nowhere else to go, who were self-sufficient, who created all these wonderful things are now going to be disturbed in death as some of their descendants were disturbed in life by having them to be forced and moved out of the community. Seneca's 100 Women to Hear will be back after this short break. So Gibson Grove today, the cemetery is intact, but it's divided by Seven Locks Road, and the church is separated from it on the other side of the road. Is that what I understand? So the church and uh, Morning Star Tabernacle Number 88, the cemetery, uh, both of them run along Seven Locks Road, and the highway actually bisects Seven Locks Road. So it goes right across. There's like a bridge that goes across Seven Locks. And on one side of that bridge is the church, and on the other side is the Order of Moses um, and Morning Star Cemetery and actual hall structure. So this is a really important perspective you have, especially as you discussed, in terms of having new, very needed infrastructure repairs occurring, but to do that in a way that doesn't destroy what these communities represented and still represent. So how did you get interested in archaeology? As a child, were you a junior Indiana Jones or was there some other motivation? So actually for me, um, I became introduced to it in college. My um, mother worked at the Smithsonian, so I grew up as a child of the museum. So I would say Night at the Museum was my real life experience as a, a little person um, running around after hours in the Smithsonian museums. However, I didn't actually learn about archaeology and what it does and the role it can play until I, I got to college and I, I took a course per my mother's suggestion. Uh, she thought anthropology would be amazing for me. And upon doing that is uh, when the light bulb came up, came on and I discovered archaeology and recognized that 
all of the benefits. And this is truly what I wanted to do because the idea of being the first person in a hundred, sometimes thousands of years to touch an artifact since the original person placed it there was extremely exciting to me. And it is truly fascinating. And the influence, again, of a parent in all of this, seeing your mom so involved in, in museum work at the Smithsonian. So tell us about archaeology in the community. When I introduced you, I mentioned that you were the founder of this nonprofit. What does it do? Archaeology in the community is an education nonprofit, and it has three uh, programmatic goals. One, to teach you um, about archaeology. Two, professional development. And three, which is general overall community uh, programming as it relates to archaeology. Um, and this came up um, because, again, I, I am a child of uh, D.C. I do live in the shadows of the Smithsonian. However, the one thing that I noticed was there were no archaeologists. They didn't come out to classrooms. We never learned about what an archaeologist was in school. And I thought this was a huge disservice going to uh, graduate school at Berkeley. I saw all of the archaeologists from campus go out and go into schools and talk to students. And it was guaranteed every semester that they would have the ability to, you know, exchange and talk with an archaeologist. But I recognized in my own community, there wasn't that. And so I just made it my mission to change that so that kids could have the ability to go to school and to know that there's an archaeologist. And not only is there an archaeologist, but there's one who grew up here in D.C. who, you know, does the same thing and goes to the same places and kind of hangs out and culturally has the same background as them as well. So I, I'm here in D.C. as well, and I'm wondering, what's it like when you go into the classroom as an archaeologist to explain to the students about archaeology and about this community? It's amazing. Um, <laughs> I, I'm a teacher at heart. Uh, so for me, it, it's kind of like my second home being in a classroom um, with children. But to see the light bulbs go off, when you start to explain what archaeology is, how it works, what are the cool things you get to do, the things you get to find, the fact that you don't have to go to a uh, office, you work outside, just kind of explaining all of like the, the wonderful aspects of it. And then how it also fixes problems. Because oftentimes when people think of archaeology, they only think of textbooks and things that you read about or the movies, but they don't also think that we work in real time as social justice advocates. And we advocate for present communities in highlighting what their past is and um, where they came from and the importance of remembering and maintaining that past to not only them, but to the states and then also nationally for our national kind of just history and understanding of us as a complete nation. Well, you know, kids always have a, an interesting perspective, whether it's on archaeology or any number of other things. Have there things that have surprised you by virtue of what they've said to you or what you know they've learned? For me, I, I think I'm always surprised when I get the student who says, well, now I want to be an archaeologist. <laughs> <laughs> I think mostly that, that that lets me know that I did my job right. But I, I've had students tell me um, before, like, I don't look at things on the ground the same as I used to because I understand that somebody put it there or it could be something that came you know, from long ago or that it has meaning um, to everyone. So just to have a child start to restructure the way that they see their lived environment and start to look at it differently from art to pictures to uh, structures to just dirt, um, that in itself is just truly amazing. And 
it surprises me when I do get those comments because again, I mean, you like to believe as a teacher, all you know, all your students are listening to you, but I think it, it's truly amazing when they make a comment that lets you know that they it really hit home and they are paying attention. But it must also be so reinforcing in terms of validating what you're achieving with archaeology in the community that it really makes a difference. Do you mostly focus on elementary school age or beyond? So we cover elementary all the way through to college. Oh. Um, and so with the elementary and high school students, it's a little bit different. Elementary is more introductory, um, explaining the different sides of archaeology, doing hands-on projects and introducing them. Our high school students are field schools where they're actually getting out at a site and getting dirty and learning how to do the process of archaeology. And our college students, it's how to interact and talk with the public and the community and how to create innovative community programs. So by working with all of the age groups, we're kind of keeping the process going of creating really great global citizens who are really Mm -hmm. thinking creatively um, about our past and, and how we tell those stories. Well, you're certainly doing that and working in this field. It must also give you a a long-term perspective on life and current events, a different kind of perspective. Given what's going on in our world, uh, how do you see things vis-a-vis the lens of archaeology? I think the study of archaeology, archaeology is the subdivision of anthropology, which is the study of humans and just human culture. Um, and the one thing I think that's constantly reinforced to me is that xenophobia has always been at the root of a lot of the problems that we have within the world. And if we were to just stop and actually learn about our neighbors, learn about their culture, learn about the wonderful things that make them different and appreciate those differences and celebrate those differences and celebrate it in a way where it's part of our collective narrative. I think we would be a much better global society um, to live in than what we are today. Well, amen to that. I'm always sad when we run out of time, which we have come to at this point. But I really want to thank you, Dr. Alexandra Jones, for what you're doing using your great skills and experience in archaeology to uncover the history of African Americans and enslaved people in this country and also what you're doing to interest young people in our country on the ways that archaeology makes a difference and they can make a difference if they pursue that career. So thank you so much for being with us and for all that you do. Thank you very much for having me. What a different perspective we get in our history by talking to Dr. Alexandra Jones. Here are three things I took from that conversation. First, Dr. Jones is bringing to light the stories of forgotten African-American women and men. As Dr. Jones says, archaeology makes history vocal, and it gives voice to people who otherwise have been silenced. Second, it was exciting to hear Dr. Jones tell why archaeology can be so meaningful. She described the thrill of being the first person to touch something that had been placed by another person a hundred or a thousand years ago. Finally, Dr. Jones reminds us that knowledge can bring understanding between people. And as we learn about the people who came before us, we can appreciate their differences and bring them into our collective narrative. 
Tune in next week to hear about our next featured woman and discover why she's one of Seneca's 100 Women to Hear. Seneca's 100 Women to Hear is a collaboration between the Seneca Women Podcast Network and iHeartRadio with support from founding partner P&G. Have a great day.